great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of our religion. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. From the first letter of Paul to Timothy, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Today, today we celebrate, and in fine form, I might say, the Feast of the Epiphany. That smell you smell is frankincense and myrrh. After celebrating the Nativity for 12 days, our attentions now turn to the manifestation of the incarnate Son of God among the nations, starting with these mysterious men of magic from the East. What they are is unknown. They might be astrologers. They might be astronomers. They might be men of science. They might be Persian. They might be Chaldean. They might even be Arabian of some kind. But whatever they are, it is clear. These men are not Jews, they are Gentiles. They have come from a long distance, and the birth of the Messiah has been made known to them. The purpose of their coming is not to gaze or to learn or even to give presence. It is to worship, and not merely to worship the God they know, but to worship this child. The scandal of God's taking of human flesh is made known because the worship the Magi offer is not compatible with any kind of syncretism. No one says, well, I'll worship all my home gods and then worship this child too. And it isn't compatible with the sterilized Second Temple worship, which was only marginally acceptable under Herod. We never read in the Gospel of Matthew, for instance, that they stop off at the temple to worship before going to Bethlehem. This fact alone, that they come to worship this child, sends Herod into a tizzy. He is disquieted, he is restless, he is agitated, and not only is Herod troubled, but Jerusalem also is troubled, meaning that the establishment, the chief priests, the scribes, and others are troubled, agitated and disquieted at this revelation of the Magi, who stop by this holy city on their way to Bethlehem, only five miles or so to the south. I mean, the distance from Jerusalem to Bethlehem is about the distance from here to Woodway. Some of you live further than it is from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. These magi are students of Scripture in some way, and so are those among the chief priests. There is this quote in the Gospel of Matthew from the prophet Micah that the ruler that the Magi have come to worship is of ancient origin, from ancient days, a king from the line of Judah who would not only rule over Judah and Benjamin, but all of Israel, indeed the whole world. The problem is they have two totally different takes on that text. What is the cause of this agitation in Jerusalem? Well, first it is this that the Magi have come to worship this child. Unless the child is God himself, this can be nothing but blasphemy. For the Pharisees, this is to say that the nations have come into the land to sin in the land. For the temple authorities, it means that the nations have come into the land but have shunned temple worship in favor of something greater. And in a place like Bethlehem, that'd be like coming to go to see a football game at McLean Stadium, and then saying, now nah, I'm going to go watch Bellmead football instead. No offense to Bellmead. 
the Magi and their subversion of the order of worship as it was, the stability of the arrangement as it was, is troubling. Something very clear that God is undoing the old ways. There's something deficient in the old ways. Second, the agitation and trouble is over the kingly identity of this child born in Bethlehem. For Herod, a Davidic king such as Micah prophesied about, can only mean one thing. My days are numbered. can also mean treason is afoot. And worse, Herod was only ever by Roman standards an ethnarch, meaning the ruler of an ethnos, a people, a people that he actually had no common lineage with. Herod was an outsider, a foreigner. All of his fathers were as well. A renewed Davidic kingdom would mean rebellion against Herod and worse, rebellion against Rome. And rebellions are a dangerous business, especially when they're joined by powers foreign to the Roman Empire, which the Magi certainly were. To see men who are very possibly Chaldeans come to Jerusalem to pay obeisance to a supposed Jewish king contains all kinds of troubling things for those in power. And third, it is absolutely troubling that the revelation of this child came from the east. Why didn't it come from inside Jerusalem? Why didn't it come from a Jew? First century Judaism is a culture that has come to terms with its new identity as part of a world order that is centered on Rome. Culture, economics, learning, all of these come from Rome. And the east is some kind of stranger from Israel's past. That men of learning from the place of exile 600 years prior should now come to worship is an indictment on, the ju on just how sterilized Judaism has become in this world order. Yes, there is peace throughout the world, but it has come at a cost. And into all of this, Jesus has come not to bring peace because there's already peace, but a sword. The manifestation of Jesus to the nations, which comes into sharp focus in the season of Epiphany, brings with it an agitation, an agitation of the status quo of this world. The showing forth of Jesus shows us that the world's understanding of what is worthy, indeed what is worth worshiping, is paltry in comparison to the Word made flesh. The showing forth of Jesus shows us that the world order of power and authority is paltry in comparison to the one who hung the stars in the, in the universe taking on human flesh to reign as king. And finally, the showing forth of Jesus to the nations shows us, especially today, when the West and the church in the West particularly has become sterilized by secularism, that the renewal of God's people will always come from unexpected places from the east, from Bethlehem, from Galilee, from the Middle East, perhaps, from heaven itself. The manifestation of Jesus in the flesh is the announcement of true wisdom, otherworldly wisdom, divine wisdom, wisdom itself taking on human flesh for our salvation. For in the flesh God manifests, as Gregor Nyssa puts it, manifests the superabundance of his power by means external to his own nature. I mean, I want you to think about that. That God manifests the superabundance of his power by means external to his own nature. I mean, part of you needs to be, have some fear and trembling about this a bit. Because had, had God not manifest himself in the flesh, he would have manifested himself 
as a total theophany without the flesh, and I think everyone who saw it would have died. <laughs> Dramatic, unsettling. It's unsettling enough. The mystery which we ponder today is this, that so long as God remains in heaven, he, cannot, he can be ignored, he can be tossed aside. He can be worshipped in principle, but not in spirit and in truth. He can be king and lord, but only in absentia. And so long as any nation or any kingdom remains estranged from God's kingship, so long as he is only lord from afar and not right up close visible, that nation will continue to be sterile, the city of man and not the city of God. And that, in short, is the challenge of Epiphany. It is what John the Evangelist writes. No one has ever seen God, the only Son who is in the bosom of the Father. He has made Him known. I mean, as one friend of mine likes to put it, if you want to know what God is like, you need only look to Jesus. That's it. It is to say that God has been made known in the flesh, and therefore nothing short of worship, the worship of the only begotten, can possibly be fitting. It is to say that Jesus must be Lord of all, not some, and must be Lord of your life and mine, and not one part of it, but all of it. He cannot be ignored because that claim is so high. What we see in the Magi is actually quite true. It's exactly as Jesus says it. If, if, the, if the people fail to worship him, what happens? The rocks will cry out. So why not men from the east? Why not magicians from the east? Jesus cannot be ignored. God will not be ignored. And let me tell you this. If your life has become sterilized, powerless, and of little consequence by the world's standards, it is your calling to magnify him. And maybe, it's, maybe you feel this smallness because you are living by your own power, and all you have to give others is yourself, and you always come up short. God's chosen people in those days were under the impression that they had something to give the world, something special, and they did. They just forgot what it was. They forgot that that something special was God. They had forgotten their vocation, given under Abraham, that through this nation all the people of the world would be blessed, and not because of the magnificence of the people, but because of the magnificence and power of their God. I mean, we see this in churches, don't we? Churches full of people who think, our church is so great, isn't it wonderful? We have the best people, and they're all wonderful and warm and welcoming, and isn't it wonderful? And you know what happens to churches like that? They die. They collapse. Why? Because they witness to nothing but their own splendor. And what they come to worship on Sundays is themselves. Brothers and sisters, I stand before you today convinced that in all too many places in the church, the church's worship has become little more than the satisfaction of human desires. We want the music to lift our spirits. We want to feel well cared for in worship. We come wanting to be fed. We come feeling that we must meet the object of our desires because otherwise, what is the point? Why are we here? But we forget that God is the point, that God is worth the cost. That God is worth our treasure. That God is worth our all. 
We forget that true worship looks like Jesus on the cross. And that's what the gifts of frankincense and myrrh point to. Myrrh is what you fill a tomb with when someone's buried. It hides the smell of rot. True worship looks like Jesus on the cross, hanging there suspended in love while a busy and noisy world looks on. And Jesus offers this act not because it is what he wants, but because he has submitted his desires to the will of the Father. And that's all he wants. In other words, in true worship, we see all of our capacity for reason and desire transformed into adoration and glorification of the living God. And I'm not saying that this is done perfectly here at Christ Church, but it is my hope that our worship here would stand as a challenge to the poverty with which the church in North America often worships. Poverty that is grounded in worship that is self-gratifying, worshiping in the way we want, according to our style, according to our custom, in the way we desire, and that is not worship. I also stand before you today convinced that the American church bears no small amount of responsibility for the way in which we have placed our hope in earthly rulers and have therefore marginalized the kingship of Jesus and become a sterilized church. It is no mistake that the majority of young people in America, though they believe in God, believe that he is utterly detached from any ongoing activity or presence in this world. Well, not the, not the youth here, though. They know better. But most American youth are deists. And they're deists because that is what the church in North America has taught them, either in word or example. You call out to God when things get really bad. God is to be called upon only when all other options have been exhausted. Otherwise, he is to be ignored, and he is to be ignored because he ignores you. But the God who takes on human flesh in the person of Jesus Christ, who inhabits a full human nature, shows us that he is intimately concerned with the things of this world. That he cares about every aspect of creation, every atom, every molecule, and that all is held together by the word of his power, not only in creation, but in you and in me. And therefore, as the church is called upon to be a challenge to earthly power, the church is also called to an enduring witness, to be on mission with Jesus as he seeks to love and save lost humanity. We cannot say, well, that's someone else's problem, whether it be the government or some charity we like. If we are his own, we must be convinced that the totality of life in this world is of utter consequence. Lastly, many of us have witnessed up close the sterilization of the church's witness in this world. We have watched as secularism has rapidly sought to redefine meaning at a fundamental level. We have watched as time and again the church has watered down her message for the sake of becoming palatable within the order of this world with her desires and aims. We are of no trouble to this world a majority of the time. We are no longer agitators or rabble-rousers. Herod would have no trouble with us at all. And we've suffered for it. Because this untroublesome gospel is simply put an aberration from the true gospel and has thus become sterilized and no good news at all. And let me tell you this, 
When the church's witness to the gospel is sterilized, devoid of power, she is unable to reproduce herself, unable to make disciples, unable to evangelize. The key is simple. A robust and powerful witness to the incarnate Jesus. We need to say with Paul, great, indeed we confess, is the mystery of our religion. It's great. We need to get our priorities in order. No longer interested in being acceptable to the world at large and instead being concerned merely with being faithful to Jesus and faithful not in a nebulous or incoherent way, but by fidelity to Jesus himself as he has revealed himself to us. And that means at the same time, fidelity to the word of God written. I mean, anyone who says, I can be faithful to Jesus, but depart from scripture has lost it. It's not what Scripture says for sure. We must be faithful to the Word of God written, faithful to the faith once delivered, and faithful to the truth that is found in Jesus without veering to the right or to the left. On Epiphany, we remember the simple truth that, God, that in Christ God has manifested Himself to us. We have seen Him and the church bears witness to the nations of the salvation he has brought. Great, indeed, we confess, is the mystery of our religion. Let Herod be troubled by it. Let us rejoice. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.